All right. Um, I really found myself uh, in a situation where I can't not share with you some of my thoughts uh, about William James, right? Um, just felt like whatever YouTube videos I posted, whatever readings you had, all that stuff was fine, it's helpful. I hope you've taken the time to not only read the assignment that's uh, in the syllabus, but watch some of the videos that I posted in Digital Dialogue there on William James, all very helpful. But uh, I just felt like, you know what? I like James way too much, and he's way, way too important to, uh, to psychology, to thinking critically about psychology, to understanding the history of our discipline, uh, where, where it could have gone and didn't go, and maybe should have gone and didn't go. Uh, I just, he's too magnificent and fascinating and insightful a thinker for me not to uh, take some time to talk about him. I just uh, I thought, you know what, I gotta do that. Um, didn't think I was gonna do that, didn't think it was gonna matter, but I changed my mind. And so that's, uh, that's what this video is about. Uh, it's gonna be kind of free form, right? I'm not really gonna go back over everything you've read and so on and so forth, all of that kind of stuff uh, in any kind of order. Uh, I just, I'd rather just kind of give you a, a sense of, a feel for what William James is all about, what his concerns were, and what his positions were. And I, I want to share with you, I'm going to read a little bit from James, actually, because you really haven't lived uh, until you've read James and let his language kind of wash over you. He's a brilliant writer, a wonderful command of the English language. Um, if you really want to irritate someone over in the humanities, over in the English department sometime, just tell them that uh, Henry James was great, great American novelist, but William was a better writer. They'll, they'll lose it. They'll just they'll go nuts. Right? They can't stand that. But it's true. It's absolutely true. And if uh, anybody says otherwise to you, just send them to me. I'll beat them down. Okay. Anyway, um, so want to do James. I'm, I'm, so I'm not going to walk through him like I would in a normal lecture, or you might do, uh, you know, just, oh, here are the things to remember about William James. He did this, and he said this, here's the day he was born, and blah, 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 blah. All that sort of thing. I, I want to get you more of a feeling of why he matters rather than just what he said. Um, yeah, I don't know if you can completely separate the two, but I'm going to try uh, and help you just get an appreciation for why he might matter and why you might want to learn more about William James, pay close attention to what you've read and studied and, uh, and so on and so forth. So um, James, uh, a fascinating uh, character, psychologically fascinating. Uh, he was a kind of person who took ideas very seriously, right? Um, now, most of the time we'd say, well, that's, that's what academics do. That's what you know, professors and uh, scientists, uh, philosophers, that's what we do. We take ideas seriously, blah, blah, blah. Um, anyway, that, it's not true. That isn't the case, right? At least not the way I want to talk about it, the way I want you to help, help you understand William James a little bit. Um, so, for example, you can be sitting in a class and you can have a professor who's telling you all about 
uh, all of the scientific experiments that we've done that show that human behavior is purely reflexive, governed by powerful forces in the environment or in our genes or our biology or, or whatever, right? Um, and talk at length about how human beings are really just complex machines made out of meat, responding to stimuli as they must, and, uh, and how everything in the universe is just determined in that fashion, kind of giving a, a physics uh, approach to making sense of psychology, right? You can, you can get that, right? And uh, for the period of the class where that lecture is taking place, the professor is taking the idea very seriously, right? And everybody's very studious and uh, taking notes and really concerned and feeling enlightened and so on and so forth. But the minute the class is over, as soon as class is over, nobody lives that way. The professor doesn't live that way, doesn't treat his children, uh, his wife, the uh, professor, she doesn't uh, treat her husband or her family as though they're all just machines responding to environmental stimuli uh, or just a collection of genes seeking reproductive success or, or what have you. We don't act that way. We don't experience the world that way. We don't do that, right? Um, I'll give you an example, and I, I, I don't know if I've used this in class before. I, I, I use it a lot because I think it's a great example, but I don't know if I shared it in class. Um, a, a, a number of years ago, the, uh, uh, the flagship journal in our discipline, the American Psychologist, had a special edition, right? And, and the special edition of the journal was devoted to um, determinism. Right, and the title of the the edition, the special edition, was "Behavior It's Automatic." Right, and so what was it was a collection of research studies by different psychologists who were making the claim that they had demonstrated in the laboratory that human beings uh, uh, that their behavior is not under their control, even though they think it is that we're actually controlled by forces outside of our awareness and conscious processes and that we can be manipulated into doing things and we think we're in charge, but we're really not, right? Um, so anyway, th there was a special editor for this, right? Who, who gathered and got these scientists together, these psychologists to do their studies and brought it all together and kind of herded it through the process. And uh, this psychologist, she wrote an introduction a one-page kind of quick introduction. She started off by saying, uh, the question of free will and determinism has animated psychology, it's animated philosophy, it's animated the Western civilization for uh, centuries and centuries and centuries. It's a really important issue. But uh, pro real progress hasn't been made. Until now, she said. She said, now we're harnessing the experimental methods of rigorous science in psychology and we're resolving the issue of whether human behavior is free or determined, right? Um, and what we're finding, she said, was that human behavior is not nearly as free as we thought it was. It's really, a, you know, the result of automatic processes and so on and so forth. And then, then in this, this one-page intro, then she quickly summarized in a few sentences the different studies that you were going to read later in the, the, the volume, right? Uh, talked about all that. But the, the kicker was this, and this is what I mean when we don't take ideas seriously most of the time. We're playing a game, 
uh, as academics and psychologists most of the time. It's kind of playing a game where we pretend we're serious, but we don't, we don't really live our ideas. We don't take them that seriously. Uh, anyway, so you get to the, the bottom of, of her introduction, and she has a little paragraph there at the end. She says this. Now remember, the whole thing's been about how we're increasingly demonstrating that human behavior is determined, right? That there isn't any freedom. But her closing paragraph ran something like this. I want to take this, uh, in conclusion, I want to take this opportunity to express my gratitude to my colleagues and contributors to this uh, journal for their willingness to engage in the free exchange of ideas. Yeah. You're left with this kind of sense of, wait a minute, you're talking out of both sides of your mouth here. Which is it? Are we free or are we determined? Because uh, you, you just said the research is showing we're determined that we're not in control, that we're not aware of what's really causing our behavior and what we're really doing. And when we think we are, we're wrong. And yet you said, I want to take this time to express my gratitude. Well, why would you express gratitude to meat machines, automations that just do the things they have to do because of the forces in the world that make them do it, right? Uh, it was written in their genes or their biochemistry or their environment or learning history or their ego conflicts or whatever it is. What's there to be grateful for, right? Uh, as I mentioned in the, the other video about evolutionary psychology, it just doesn't make any sense to be grateful for things that have to happen as they do and couldn't be otherwise. It's just absurd. Uh, and then to say the free exchange willingness, the willingness to engage in the free exchange of ideas, just loaded with, that's just bizarre that you would do that. But it happens all the time. So what I'm saying is we don't take the ideas seriously. We talk about them. We act like we're serious, but we don't live it out. We really don't live it out. Um, well, you know, what's this got to do with William James? Let me back up. What I say, I said William James was the kind of person who took ideas very seriously. He, he lived them. He believed them. He felt them very deeply. He couldn't just play the academic game. So here's the deal is, is William James, he's, he, he goes and um, he, he gets his medical, medical degree in, at Harvard in 1869. Uh, but he's been struggling for a long time because a naturalistic, mechanistic, material worldview is all the rage, uh, just like it is today, but it was really something seen as new. And uh, you got Darwin on the scene and all sorts of things are starting to happen. Um, um, you know, advances in medicine and physics and people are really buying into the materialist view uh, through and through. And that's what, we, that's what James was being taught at school, both in the U.S. and Germany when he was studying there, you know, all of this. And he takes this idea very seriously, and it depresses him profoundly, depresses him. In fact, he, he writes uh, at one point in his, uh, in his journal that he's been reading, he's been reading an essay by uh, a French philosopher, a real minor character that doesn't really show up much, but he influenced James somehow. Anyway, it was a guy by the name of uh, Charles Renouvier. And Renouvier was arguing for freedom, free will of some sort, right? And um, James reads this, and it's, it's outside 
everything he's been reading and studying in, in science and medicine, right, all along. And it kind of blows him away because he's never really encountered anybody who was going to defend or articulate a position that said free will is real and we can believe in it. We can, it makes a difference, right? Um, anyway, so he, he writes this, I'm going to read it to you. He writes this uh, in his journal once. He says, I think that yesterday was a crisis in my life, an intense moment, a turning point, all right? A crisis in my life. I finished the first part of Renouvier's second essay, and I see no reason why his definition of free will need be the definition of an illusion. Right? Now, Renouvier's definition was this, the sustaining of a thought because I choose to when I might have other thoughts. Right? I, I choose this when I could have chosen that. Right? It's a very basic kind of conception of freedom. And, and it has its own limitations and problems. But nonetheless, he lays it out and, and James is looking at us going, well, why, why does that not make sense? That, I can't think of any good reason why that couldn't be the case, right? But despite all I've been taught about materialism, this seems like it makes sense, right? He says, and this will give you some insight into his pragmatism and the way he thinks about truth. Because it's right here early on, the kernels of it are in what he expresses here, this moment of his life where he says, I had this crisis. Um, and this point where, wow, what do I do here? Well, so he was reading the essay and he's thinking, there's no reason that, that, that this has to be an illusion, that free will has to be an illusion. There might be, there might be something to this. He says, so, uh, um, at any rate, he goes, I will assume for the present, right? I'm going to assume for now. And he says, at least until next year, I'm going to give myself a year, assuming that free will is no illusion, that it's real, right? So here's something interesting he does. He doesn't say, uh, I'm going to wrestle with Renouvier and I'm going to work out the logic and I'm going to hammer this together and see if it fits. And we're going to compare it to the most recent scientific findings. And we're going to look at this philosophy and under all of them, what does Darwin have to say about it? That sort of thing. He doesn't engage in that. He says, you know what I'm just going to do? I'm going to, I'm going to assume it's real. I'm going to assume free will. Cause I've, I've, I've spent a lot of years now assuming that materialism was true, that determinism was true. I didn't even really assume it. I just, uh, everybody else said so, and that's what I was taught. So, but yeah, I guess I've been assuming it. And what's it done for? It's made me miserable. It's made me absolutely miserable. Physically unhealthy, mentally unhealthy, emotionally unhealthy. So what am I going to do? If there, I, I'm going to just assume for the next year, I'm going to live like free will is real. Like it's real, it's not an illusion. And he said, then he says, so my first act of free will shall be to believe in free will. I'm going to believe it and see what difference it all makes, if it makes any difference at all, right? Uh, so my first act of free will shall be to believe in free will. He says, hitherto, up to this point, hitherto, when I have felt like taking a free initiative, like daring to act originally, without carefully waiting for contemplation of the external world to determine everything for me, 
suicide seemed the most manly form to put my daring into. Right? Now, this is pretty heavy stuff, right? And he, he said, I, up to this point, whenever I've thought, how, what would, how would I be free? Could I be free? Could I do something original, something undetermined, something that's new and transcends everything else? Is that possible? The only thing he could come up with was suicide. Now, that may sound really strange, but think about it for a minute, right? Because in the, the kind of Darwinian worldview, the naturalistic worldview that he's swimming in, that he's living in, that's part of the educational culture uh, of, the, of the elites, uh, everything is geared towards reproductive success, the struggle to survive. And so the only thing he can think of that would swim against that current, would go against all the causal flow, would be suicide, right? And that's why he's been playing with that idea. This is how well he is, right? Because again, he takes these ideas very seriously. He lives them out, right? And that's what he's doing here. He's gonna say, I'm gonna live this different idea out. I'm gonna live my life as though what I choose and what I do makes a difference and matters and that I have some role to play in my own life, right? He says, so now I will go a step further with my will, right? Uh, not only to act, but to believe, believe as well. Believe in my individual reality and creative power. I'm going to test this idea by putting it into practice. I'm not going to just leave it on the chalkboard in the lecture hall. I'm going to live it. I'm going to live it out and see if it makes a difference because I'm pretty miserable and I'm contemplating suicide. And so let's see if, if I'm still there a year from now after I've lived my life as though I make a difference, right? This is, this is the kernel of his notion of pragmatism. Test ideas by the difference they make in real life. If an idea doesn't make any difference, then it doesn't matter. If nothing is different, if you believe this or you believe that, then it doesn't matter which of those you believe. There's no truth to it, they just are, it doesn't matter. But if my life is different if I believe this, then if I believe that, that's the truth in this one. It makes a difference, right? There's where you find the truth, okay? So you try out the idea, you live it, you test it. You see, he says, you gotta see if the idea has cash value. If you can cash it out, it makes a difference. You can, right? Now, uh, for Latter-day Saints, I think one of the ways we might hear this is, by their fruits you shall know them. Try it out. See if it makes a difference. See what happens, right? Uh, you may have logically arrived at the proposition that God doesn't exist, or if he does, he doesn't speak to people anymore, or he certainly didn't speak to some 14-year-old, and it's absurd that some uh, poorly educated young man in upstate New York had golden plates written by ancient peoples and translated it, and so on. It just it challenges reason. William James would have looked at that and said, well, try it out. Read the blasted thing. It's got this promise at the end. It says, 
Read it, think about it, pray it, see what happens. See if it makes a difference in your life, right? That by their fruits, by the fruits. That's how you come to know this, right? That's James's position. Um, and so it's important to understand who he's responding to there, right? He's responding to both the rationalists and the empiricists. He's not happy with either of those approaches. And so he's pretty radical here because a lot of a lot of folks are trying to mesh them together, right? Uh, to bring parts of rationalism or parts of empiricism together and generate what we would today call positivistic science or positivistic philosophy of science, logical positivism, some of that, which is, um, you know, what we see in psychology, for example, when we say uh, we do the empirical thing, we go out and we observe lots of individual cases, we get lots of data points, lots of uh, subjects in our study, and then to make sure that something happened, we're, we're going to use, that's the empirical side, then we're going to use the rational side, we're going to use mathematical laws and principles to determine if our observations are valid or not, right? So we're bringing both rationalism and empiricism together, and we're using them to establish truth, and truth is whatever exists independent of us. William James is not impressed with either rationalism or empiricism. And I won't go into all the ways he spends most of his entire life taking shots at both of them, right? Um, intriguingly enough, he, but he sees himself as what he says, he calls a radical empiricist, which is not like Hume. He doesn't, he's not a big fan of Hume because he's not a big fan of materialism. But I'll talk a little bit. In a little bit, I'll talk about what radical empiricism is and how that's different, right? But what he's doing here is, is James is saying, look, you rationalists, you think truth is some idea that there's an external reality apart from us. Remember the subject-object split we've talked about in class? The mind is here, the external world's there, and, you know, constant, how do we know that? How do we get knowledge of that in the mind and all this sort of problems? How, we can't know the phenomenal world directly, right? Um, you know, I can't, excuse me, can't know the nominal world again. It's all this separation. Anyway, I don't want to get bogged down in that. Suffice it to say that um, for the rationalist, truth is an idea. It's an abstraction. You capture truth in logical propositions. A squared plus B squared equals C squared. There's, that's truth, right? And you grab it and you grasp it with your mind, with your reason, right? And there are these self-evident principles out there. Remember Descartes talking about uh, clear and distinct ideas, innate ideas in the mind. That that's truth. That's truth. Uh, and for the empiricist, what's truth? Well, truth is whatever your sensory experience creates in your mind, right? Sensory experiences of the world produce ideas in your mind, and those are that's where truth is. But for both. Both the, the rationalist and the empiricist, truth is, is something in the mind. It's an idea. It's, and, and this is why uh, James talks about that as, as kind of the, in, the intellectualist philosophy or uh, a kind of idealism, right? Truth is an idea. It's an abstraction. It's divorced from us. You only get it rationally. And this is part of the reason, you know, you, you, can, you can live your life one way and claim this is truth and but you live a different way because the truth is purely rational and it doesn't really make a claim on you it certainly doesn't show up on the road to damascus and say hey quit killing my people and i got something new for you to do right it's not the living truth it's not a relational truth it's not the living god right so it's all idealism 
And James, he's, he's got no problems with that. He, he, so he's going to come from the position that says, well, let's, let's understand truth in terms of uh, whether things matter, whether they make a difference, right? You've made a claim. This is true. Okay, does it, does it make a difference in how you live your life? Do you treat your children better? Do you treat your wife better? Do you, are you, do you, do you have hope? Do you live life in a meaningful way, right? Uh, let's look at the difference, right? If, uh, if this idea, you claim this idea is true, but it leads you into abject misery, is that's the best we can do? Or if you claim this is truth, but it makes no difference in how you live your life whatsoever, it's completely separate. What's the point of calling that truth? Truth ought to matter, James says. It ought to matter. It ought to make a difference. And so try out the ideas, right? Uh, this is one of his arguments. He doesn't make an argument for the existence of God in the traditional way. He just simply says that it seems to be that God, the very idea, makes a difference in, uh, in people's lives. People live life differently when they take that idea seriously. Uh, and they, they have a different life than those who don't. And so the truth of God's existence isn't in some logical propositions that I generate to prove the existence of God in some mathematical, geometric, or logic way, right? It's not, ah, that doesn't work. It's never worked. We've tried that for centuries, and we can't ever convince anybody about God because there's always excellent arguments against it, right? And he says, conversely, you know, uh, uh, the idea that, well, you believe in God because your environment reinforced you to, because of the society you were raised in, because your genes dictated or whatever. Well, that, that robs the whole thing of its meaning. So let's just take a look at life. Is, does it make a difference if I believe? I mean, deeply believe. Not just give my conscious assent to a proposition, but really believe, really live. The idea, if it makes a difference then that's the, there's the truth. That's where we find the truth, in the fruits, in the living, in the difference it makes in life. Okay, so well, I probably hammered that one home enough for you. Uh, but So you're not going to find James laying out an argument for the existence of God. He's simply going to say, well, let's, let's compare lies. Let's take a look at the people who believe, who live it, and those who don't. And, Let's see what difference that makes, right? Um, in this sense, he's, uh, I, I don't want to draw them too close together, but uh, go read Joseph Smith history sometime, folks, right? It's, it's a fascinating thing. Go read it uh, from the beginning. You know the story, Joseph Smith. We got general conference coming up, and we're going to celebrate this, you know, 200 years. All this sort of thing is coming on. It's important stuff. Go read that. And when you're done, Point out to me or to your loved one or your roommate or your dog, cat, whatever, parakeet, I don't care. Point out where Joseph Smith made an argument for the existence of God. I ain't found it. He witnesses. He bears witness. And his whole life is a witness of his belief, his experience, his understanding, right? He lived a different life. Um, but there's no argument. So James is kind of with that too. He says, that's kind of pointless. You're just going to, we're going to argue around in circles and circles and circles trying to prove God or disprove God. Um, so, so that's a waste of time. 
He has no patience for that. So this is a waste. It goes nowhere. So why are we doing it? Uh, other than it seems to be really good at making sure we get to keep jobs in universities and we get to argue about stuff at cocktail parties. But other than that, it's a waste of time for him. Right? Well, anyway, after he decided he was going to live his life and believing in, in free will and agency, right? he had an immediate change. Hope comes in, becomes so much more productive. Now, he struggles through the rest of his life at different times. Uh, with health problems, with belief and, and stuff. So it's not over. It's not, uh, oh, he's great from then on. He still struggles at times to know. But, but something important happens for him that really shows him that it makes a difference. The ideas. Ideas have consequences. I think I said this at the beginning of this course, and I've said it a couple of other times. Ideas have consequences, folks. If you believe them, if you live them, it makes a difference. And living in a world where I have some control, some capacity to choose and do otherwise, and I'm responsible, and I can create, and I can be different, you live a different world. You live a different life than you do if you think you're just the victim of whatever causal forces that are operating and making stuff happen, right? You just live a different life. Um, Anyway, well, <clears throat> so he wants to say, look, let's open it all up. If an idea works, if it makes a meaningful, important, significant difference in our lives, then there's the truth, the validity of it. Let's go. Let's, let's judge the worth of ideas by their usefulness, the difference they make, the positive difference, the world, the possibilities they open up rather than close down. And let's go with that instead of, uh, well, we, we have to measure stuff in the lab, or we have to deduce from rational principles, all of that stuff. Let's, let's play it out for me. In fact, here's this, this is kind of a fun little quote. Let me share this quote with you. He says, rationalism sticks to logic and the empyrean. That means the lofty and the abstract, right? He said, rationalism sticks to logic and the empyrean. Empiricism sticks to the external senses. Pragmatism is willing to take anything, to follow either logic or the senses, and to count the humblest and most personal experiences. She will count mystical experiences if they have practical consequences. She will take a God who lives in the very dirt of private fact, if that seems a likely place to find him. Uh, another time, uh, James says, look, there's... There's a problem in our burgeoning brand new psychology world working out here. There's a real problem. If we think that we have to deny human freedom because we can't measure it in the laboratory, because free will doesn't fit in a beaker and we can't measure it with our brass instruments and that sort of thing. If we think, well, we have to deny the reality of freedom because we can't measure it in the lab and see it and observe it and all that sort of thing, well, the problem is not with freedom. The problem's with our method. So we better come up with different methods. We better come up with methods that help illustrate freedom and meaning and possibility, right? Now, that's a message that most psychologists missed uh, or have rejected, right? Even though they look at James and say, he's the father of our discipline. Uh, he's super important. He's great. But we don't read him and we don't take seriously his advice. Uh, but his position was, look, 
come up with different methods, right? Come up with different methods that allow you to make sense of things that, that do matter. Don't just rule something out of bounds and dismiss its reality because it doesn't fit the method you're comfortable with. We have to be more creative, more open-minded, more willing to try different things out, right? Um, well, so the, the, there, you're getting a sense, I hope, of his pragmatism, right? Uh, and how he really wants to open things up, right? And see things in different ways. Uh, and interestingly enough, he's a founder of the discipline of psychology, and yet um, he's its one of its most persistent and insightful critics right from the get-go. It's intriguing because he starts out in medicine, right? But then he moves to psychology, and uh, he's teaching psychology um, at universities, establishing that. He's encouraging lots of stuff going on there, but he's struggling with it. He gets invited. Here's a cool thing, right? He gets invited uh, by Henry Holt, who was a very famous publisher at that time. In fact, the Holt Publishing Company is still in existence. Uh, but he gets invited in 1878. He gets invited by Henry Holt to write a textbook on psychology. Um, the first one. He writes the first intro to psychology textbook, right? Uh, it takes him 12 years to write the book, and it's big. It comes in two hefty volumes. It's a big book. Um, after it gets published, then they go back and they pare it down into a small version, right, about half the size, and uh, the, the smaller version of the intro, right, the more concise. Um, people started calling the big two-volume version, they called it the, the James, and then they called the smaller one the, the Jimmy, right? Anyway, uh, so he writes, it takes him 12 years to write it. He gets it done in 1890s, two volumes, 28 chapters, almost 1,400 pages, right? And here's what James had to say about that book. He says, no one, he wrote this letter to Henry Holt when he gives him the, the manuscript. No one could be more disgusted than I am at the sight of this book. No subject is worth being treated of in a thousand pages. Had I 10 years more, I could rewrite it in 500. But as it stands, it is this or nothing. A loathsome, distended, tumefied, bloated, dropsical mass. Testifying to nothing but two facts. Now, this is important. These are the two facts. Number one, this is his massive introduction to psychology establishing the field of psychology in the United States. He's the principal guy, right? He's laying it out. And here he says, this is what my book testifies to. First, there is no such thing as a science of psychology, nor could there ever be. This is what a lot of people miss, right? That the entire book is one sustained argument against a scientific psychology. Imagine that as your introduction to scientific psychology is that when you're done, you're now convinced there's no such thing and there couldn't be, right? Because for James, human beings can't, the most important things about human beings can't be measured, can't be studied in the laboratory, aren't amenable to natural law explanations and the rest. And that's what psychology wanted then, and that's what it still wants, and James is still pertinent, he's still saying, hmm, doesn't, doesn't work that way, folks. It's not gonna work. 
So we can't have a natural science psychology. We might have a different kind of psychology. Psychology might be still something we're going to uh, investigate. What does it mean to be human? What's human nature like? How do we understand it? What do we do? All that stuff. But experimentalism isn't going to work to make a whole lot of sense out of human beings for James, right? Well, he says that's that's one of the facts. And the second one, he says, uh, the second thing that this this massive bloated text uh, witnesses to is that uh, William James is incapable. Now, he's, I would say he's right about the first thing and totally wrong about the second thing. But he was profoundly disappointed in himself and the quality of the book. Dis, he struggled sometimes with, kind of, am I doing any good? Do I know anything? Do I know what I'm talking about? Um, and he did. He's a genius. He's the, the single most important, significant, influential American philosopher, bar none. Right? Nobody's come close since then, and nobody was there certainly before him. Uh, but he didn't feel that way. He wasn't committed. He wasn't convinced. He struggled with self-doubt for his entire life. Right. Um, anyway, so a lot of people weren't happy with the book. Right. Uh, a lot of criticism from the behaviorists, uh, some of the other functionalists, uh, some of the evolutionary folks like Baldwin and Spencer, they weren't real happy with it. The introspectionists from Germany, Wilhelm Wundt, for example, the other kind of father of psychology, talked about him, I haven't talked about him, but we should. Uh, anyway, Wundt, uh, Wundt wrote this, he read the book and he responded, he said, it is literature, it is beautiful, but it is not psychology, right? He didn't, he didn't like it at all because he thought, hey, we have a well, he was a rationalist to begin with. Wundt was a continental rationalist, and then he liked the experimental idea. And with James hammering away at that, Wundt's not going to be happy. Uh, anyway, so um, some more things uh, just to get a feel for for William James uh, and and what he's up to. Um, if you uh, let me talk about radical empiricism for a second, and then I want to finish off with some of the free will determinism thing, things that he had to say. Radical empiricism. For William James, radical empiricism means simply this. We study experience. Not just sensory experience, mind you, but all experience. James says there's all kinds of experiences besides sensory experience. The experience we have of being in relationships with others, meaningful experience, mystical experience, spiritual experiences, uh, just all sorts of experience we have that's not reducible to senses, to the senses or sensation. But that matters, right? So when he says, excuse me, so when he says we ought to study freedom, why? Well, because we experience being free. And he says there's no reason at the outset to dismiss that feeling of freedom and Ability to choose is just an illusion. That can't be real. No, he says, your materialist philosophy requires you to dismiss that. Your determinist philosophy requires you to dismiss the reality of those experiences. That's not good science. Good science focuses on experience. You don't force the world to fit your preconceived notions. You let the world teach you about itself. And so if we're going to do psychology right, he says, we got to let the world teach us about itself. And one of the things that's real in the world is our experience of freedom. So let's come up with methods to do that. And then he says, there's another one, right? Is uh, a lot of people report experiences with the divine. 
And psychologists want to dismiss that right out of the bat because they're committed to a materialist philosophy that doesn't have any room for God or for the study of God. And he says, but that requires us to dismiss these real experiences. We're going to be radical empiricists. We're going to take experience seriously wherever we find it, whatever form it comes in, and learn from it. And so this is one of the things that led James to write uh, uh, another major book called uh, The Varieties of Religious Experience. Amazing book. It is to this day, after all these years, to this day, uh, one of the single most important and still relevant and still read and still cited books in the psychology of religion. It's brilliant stuff, right? Um, you might want to take a peek at it just for the fact that he talks about Joseph Smith's experience uh, at a part in there. And he, he maintained a correspondence with Carl Mazur and with B.H. Roberts. In fact, he was scheduled to come out to BYU at one point to deliver some lectures here. He'd been invited out by Roberts and by Carl Mazur, and, but he got sick and wasn't able to come out and it never happened, but he was fascinated uh, by all of this. Anyway, um, he said, if you want to understand religious experience, then go look at it in all its varieties. That's the title of the book, Varieties of Religious Experience. Right? And do a psychology of religion, understand it? Well, Go read people's accounts, talk to them, observe them across the spectrum to see what kind of things are going on there and share that and put that out there and try and make some sense of all of it, right? Uh, that's how you ought to study it. And I think James would say that's not just for studying religious phenomena, that's everything, right? Uh, let's not make the world fit into our preconceived little boxes, right? Let's be open. In fact, let me, let me share this little example. There's a, a story in Greek mythology um, about Procrustes, the Procrustean bed, right? And I'll go through it real quick, but essentially the story is like this. There's this, this guy, uh, Procrustes, uh, not the dude on the symptoms, Simpsons, the clown guy, no. Procrustes, different thing, okay? Anyway, he robs travelers, but he's very elaborate about how he robs travelers of their goods. The rich merchants traveling through, they need a place to stay, he offers his home, they come in, uh, he brings them in, he wines them and dines them, he's a great host, so on and so forth. All this while, his henchmen are killing the servants and stealing the goods, right, and the wagons and the carts and everything. Uh, but anyway, the, the night goes on, the merchant, the rich, wealthy merchant, he's tired, uh, and so he... He needs a place to sleep. He says, oh, I've got to get up early. You got a bed for me? And Progress says, oh yes, I have a wonderful bedroom already made for you, just for you. And he takes the merchant in there and he shows him, it's a beautiful bed, it's gorgeous, right? Silk from China and ivory and teak wood and all, you know, just feather bed, everything is just gorgeous and perfect, but it's a child size bed. The merchant's like, what's, what's, what's going on here, dude? I can't sleep in that. What do you mean? What? It's a beautiful bed. Yeah, it's, no, it's a gorgeous bed. It'd be very comfortable if I were a child, but I'm not. What, what, what do you mean? What's the problem? Right? Procrustes plays dumb. Well, look, if I got in that bed, my arms would hang off the sides. My legs would hang off the end. My head would hang off. It'd be, I can't sleep in a bed that's too small. Procrustes goes, oh, I get it. I see your problem. Here's the solution. And then he summons his men in and they grab the merchant and they cut off the arms and legs and head. And so now he fits the bed. It's a gruesome story. The Greeks were a gruesome people. Anyway, uh, what's the point of that story? Well, this is kind of James's point. We get this philosophical 
or methodological box and we force the world to fit it. And anything that doesn't fit nice and neat, that we can't measure, that we can't make a variable, that we can't just observe in our, our traditional, well, we dismiss it, explain it away, or ignore it completely. We make it fit our little Procrustean bed by chopping off meaning, morality, relationship, agency, purpose, responsibility, divinity, spirituality, all those things, chopping them off so that we can measure what our MRI scans show. Right or our response rates, right? That's what James says. That's that's not science. That's not good science. You have to be open-minded. You have to be willing to go wherever the reality is and approach it on its own terms. Let your questions dictate your methods, rather than the other way around. Rather than let your method dictate the questions you ask, let your questions guide you, right? Uh, and that's. What he says, that's radical empiricism. And so we're going to study experience, however it shows up, wherever we find it, right? And we're going to appreciate it and approach it in appropriate ways as dictated by the phenomena itself rather than by our preconceptions, right? So that's, that's kind of, that's, that's the radical empiricism for him, okay? Um, and when we're done doing that radical empiricist kind of investigation, then we have some ideas. And now we subject them to the pragmatic criteria, right? Well, what's, what's the difference? Now that I say I know this, does it make any difference in how we live our lives in any meaningful way, right? Okay, so let me end with, I mean, I'm going to wrap this up. Uh, you're already probably asleep. But if you're not, then I'm going to wrap this up by talking again about the free will determinism here, because that was incredibly important for James. Uh, it was a watershed issue, right? Either either human beings have some freedom or they don't. There's no middle ground. You either got some of it in some way, somehow, or we don't have any. And your psychology is going to be very different if you go down that track than if you go down that track. So it's really important here. But James understands, I can't prove to you that there's such a thing as for you. I'm not in that business of proving it. I'm in the business of seeing if ideas make a difference, not proving to you rationally or experimentally or what have you that something is true. We go the other way around it, right? So, um, so what I want to do is read a little bit from a wonderful essay that, uh, that James gave. Um, he gave it at uh, Harvard Divinity School um, back in 1884. It's called The Dilemma of Determinism. You can find, I think I may have, put this in the content section on Learning Suite. If not, you can Google it. You can get a copy. It's public domain. It's brilliant. Um, I, I love going to graduation, and I love sitting there and waiting for the psych students to come through, and then I look up, and I see students that I know who've taken my class, and I have an arrangement with the dean that says, hey, you can come up, and uh, you can uh, ask students, have you read you, William James? And if they look at me like this, uh, I don't give them their diploma. They have to go read and then they can get it, okay? But if they look at me and go, yeah, I did, I read it, I did it, and it's honest, and the spirit witnesses, it's like, here you go, have a smile, here's a hug, you're awesome. So maybe make a note, read some William James. And the dilemma of determinism is a great place to start. It's gonna take some getting used to because it's 19th century English 
but it's beautiful and you can get into the rhythm after a while and he's just a lot of fun. But let me read this uh, with you and I'm going to comment as we go through, but I want you to, to hear the words and think about where he's headed on some things because he makes great points that our discipline has ignored as we've gone completely the other direction. He says this, he says, a common opinion prevails that the juice has ages ago been pressed out of the free will controversy and that no new champion can do more than warm up stale arguments, which everyone has already heard. It's already right off the bat. That's better than anything you read in your intro psych textbook. Okay. But he says, okay, so we, we think that there's nothing left to say on this topic, but that's a mistake. He says, this is a radical mistake. I know of no subject less worn out, or in which inventive genius has a better chance of breaking open new ground. Not perhaps of forcing a conclusion, or of coercive assent, but of deepening our sense of what the issue between the two parties, free will on one side, determinism on the other, what the two parties really is, of what the idea of fate and free will imply. Okay, so what's he saying here? He's saying, look, uh, I can't imagine anything that an, that an inventive genius, the smart person that could, uh, has a better chance of opening some new ground, right? We're making some progress here. Not proving, not forcing anyone to believe in free will. Not going to come up with that. Not coerce assent and agreement, but at least deepen our sense. What's the issue? What's going on with the two sides? What are the real issues at work here? We've been too superficial, too clumsy. We got to spell that out. And he says, I, I think we can do that. Right? Now, it's important to understand why he says, I can't prove free will to you. I can't come up with an argument right, that will make you believe free will. Maybe you already see where I'm going with this. But his point is, if I could come up with an argument that had the evidence and the logical coherence and everything in its favor, it was so powerful that anybody who heard this argument for free will had to believe in free will. They just had to be convinced. They couldn't resist it. Well, I haven't proven free will then. I've actually proven determinism. So if you believe in free will, if you believe in human agency, possibility, freedom of any sort, you have to start with the position, uh, with, the, with, with knowing, I guess I should say. You have to start knowing, no matter how well you defend it, no matter what you have to say, people are going to be able to disagree, to reject it, right? And James recognizes that. He said, I'm not going to convince anybody through force of argument. So I'm not even going to try. What I'm going to do is say, hey, let's think a little more carefully at what's at stake here, though. Let's think about the ideas and see where they lead us and which ideas make a better difference. Right? Well, that's what he's setting us up for. But anyway, to continue on, he says, um, he talks about, you know, recently a lot of stuff's been coming out in the literature about freedom and determinism. It seems that there's uh, some feistiness and so on and so forth. He says, uh, we, we seem to have refreshed the old disputes and uh, things are getting lively and that's good. I want to be a part of that, right? And that's why he's there that night at Harvard Divinity School with these young students. Uh, he says, I cannot pretend to vie in originality with any of the masters I've named. And my ambition limits itself to just one little point. Here's his ambition. He said, I've got one point I want to make tonight. Now we're going to find out that that's got some sub points. But here's his first main point. If I can make two of the necessarily implied corollaries of determinism clearer to you than they have been made before, 
I shall have made it possible for you to decide for or against that doctrine with a better understanding of what you're up to, what you're about. Okay? So here's my, my point. My, my, this is all I want to do, this is my ambition, is to make one point clear, that there are two necessary corollaries of determinism, and I want you to be clearer about them than you have been before. Because he said, you're all running around here thinking you're good determinists, and that determinism is a good thing. I want you to understand that there may be some serious problems with this position. All right? I'm going to make it clear to you. But notice his language right from the very beginning. He's, he's clever. He's having fun with them. He's like, uh, if I make it possible for you to decide for or against determinism, right, then I've done my job. So he's already undercutting it. So I'm going to lay out this, these issues so that you can exercise your free will and decide whether you want to believe in determinism or not. Right? And if you prefer not to decide at all, he says, but to remain doubters, you will at least see more plainly what the subject of your hesitation is, or at least understand. The most I hope, oh, I'm sorry, excuse me, he says, I thus disclaim openly on the threshold all pretension to prove to you that the freedom of the will is true. I can't prove it. The most I hope is to induce some of you to follow my own example in assuming it's true and acting as if it were true. If it be true, it seems to me that this is involved in the strict logic of the case. If free will is true, then I can't prove it, but I can invite you to believe it and live it, right? Make a decision. Uh, if it's truth, the truth of the free will position ought not be forced willy-nilly down anyone's indifferent throats, right? That would be to, to completely against the principle of free will, to force anybody to believe it. It ought to be freely espoused by men who can equally well turn their backs on it. In other words, our first act of freedom, if we are free, ought in allward, all inward propriety to be to affirm that we are free. This should exclude, it seems to me, from the free will side of the question, all hope of a coercive demonstration, a demonstration which I, for one, am perfectly contented to go without. He continues, with thus much understood at the outset, we can advance. But not without one more point understood as well, right? So he says, he started as I had, I got one point I want to make. And that is that there's two necessary correlations, uh, uh, consequences, right, of determinism. And I'm ready to advance once we understand that, right? These two things, right? I just want you to be clear about that. I'm not going to force you to believe it. But I want you to understand these two necessary, necessary corollaries. And now we can advance. And But before we can advance, I got one more point I got to make. Right. One more point. The arguments I am about to urge all proceed on two suppositions. So I want you to remember this one point before I go any farther. There's two things, two suppositions that are at the base of my argument. First, when we make theories about the world and discuss them with one another, we do so in order to attain a conception of things which shall give us subjective satisfaction. Right. In other words, when we come up with theories to try and make sense, what, why do these things happen? What, where'd this come from? And what's going on in the world? Try and make sense of it. We do this in order to understand, to, to arrive at some sense of, that makes sense, that works. I understand the world better now than I used to, right? And kind of, I have a kind of, okay, this works. I'm not confused like I used to be. That's one of the things. 
when we make our theories, that's the purpose of our theories, to kind of cast the world into a better, more comprehensible shape to our minds, to our understanding. And second, he says, and second, if there are two conceptions, two theories about the world and how it works, and the one seems to us on the whole more rational, more sensible than the other one, we're entitled to suppose that the more rational one is the truer of the two. So you got two conceptions of the world, two competing theories, free will, determinism, for example. Right? You got these two competing theories about how the world operates. He says, and if after we analyze them very carefully, we find that one seems to make more sense, it holds together, leads to a better world, doesn't eat itself up, doesn't refute itself, and the other one does, well then that one must be the true one. Right? He says, I hope that you are willing to make these suppositions with me. For I'm afraid that if there be any of you here tonight who are not willing to do this, they will find little edification in the rest of what I have to say. If you're not willing to try this on, think about this in uh, this kind of open way, then you're just going to, like, what's, this is a waste of your time, right? It's just, anyway, I cannot stop to argue the point, but I myself believe that all the magnificent advancements of mathematics and physical sciences proceed from our indomitable desire to cast the world into a more rational shape in our minds than the shape into which it is thrown there by the crude order of our experience. Right? Uh, James is famous for this phrase, booming, buzzing confusion. It's a great phrase. Right? He says, that's, that's our experience of the sensory world. That's the sensor, that's the world. It's a booming, buzzing confusion. There's just stuff is happening all the time, right? There's all this stuff going on. It's constant. And if we weren't able to attend and focus and shut out some stuff, it would be just a booming, buzzing confusion. But we're able to focus, right? To weed out a lot of the booming, buzzing confusion around us and focus on this part, right? Make sense of it. Says, well, that's what we do with our theories. So we're trying to make sense of human behavior. From your first step back, human behavior can look incredibly chaotic. Like, what the heck is going on? What are these people doing? Imagine you're a Martian anthropologist and you come to this planet and look at what's going on now. What in the world are these people doing? What is this all about? These weird gestures that they make, these things they do, the things they say to each other. And have, have, wow, what the, sometimes they're beating each other. Other times they're caressing each other. What's in the world? Right? So James is saying, look, we come up with theories to explain that confusion, that chaos, that complexity in the world. That's why we do it, because we want to we have things make sense to us, right? We want to have it all make sense. And he says, that's, that's the success of the mathematical and physical sciences. They proceeded from this desire to cast the world, this booming, buzzing, confusion of the world, into a more rational shape in our mind than the one we experience directly, right? The world, he says, the world has shown itself to a great extent plastic to this demand of ours for rationality. It's, elastic might be the better word there, right? But the, the, the world doesn't seem to care what theories we make of it, right? So look out your window if you're here in Provo. If you're not, don't. Imagine you're looking at your window up at the mountains, right? They're right behind me from where I'm living here in Springville. You look at the mountains. 
there's shell formations and all of that. And we have these great theories about how all that happened. Plate tectonics, magma movements, we had, you know, seismic activity, erosion, all of that. So we got all these great theories about how the mountains came to be the way they are out here and how the formations happen, right? And guess what? The mountains don't care. They could not care less than they do because they don't care at all what our theories are. We could come up with all sorts of theories to explain that. We could come up with all sorts of things. And the physical reality of the world, the world itself, doesn't care whether we talk about te plate tectonics and magma flows and, and erosion, or whether we talk about, you know, invisible uh, little sculptors bouncing around, creating the, uh, the, the mountains don't care, right? whether this was formed by the word of God as a miracle, whether it doesn't care. We can come up with whatever the heck we want. The world doesn't care. It's plastic. It can be molded into any, any shape in our minds we want. Right? That's something there. So, uh, for example, let me, because I'm going to make sure you get what I'm, I'm driving at here. Right? Um, you might look at this video. Right? This is a bit of human behavior particularly boring bit of human behavior by a particularly boring old professor, but it's a bit of human behavior, right? Um, you might ask the question, why is he doing that? What in the world's going on there? Why is this old dude making a video and talking about William James and doing all these things and sitting there and doing all that stuff? You could come up with an explanation that says, well, he, he has been reinforced by his environment for doing this sort of thing in the past. Uh, he's got a certain genetic predisposition to wordiness, loquaciousness, uh, uh, being a smarty pants, know-it-all, whatever, right? Uh, or his brain chemistries function this way. We'd come up and say, well, his actions, his behavior, what he's doing right now has been determined by all these natural forces coming together and making it happen. Or you could say James is going to, or you could look at what's going, what I'm doing here in this video and say, to, and answer the question, why is he doing that? Well, because he's making choices. He has purposes, aims. He wants to share his love of William James with his students. He wants to reach out to them and speak to them uh, and maybe inspire them, share some ideas or whatever. He's making just choices. He didn't have to. He could say, I'm not doing that. I'm not comfortable with this whole video nonsense. Um, I, I don't like it. I don't like talking in front of a, a computer screen and a camera. I'd rather be in front of people, but I'm going to do it anyway. He could have done a lot, but he made a choice. Okay, so you got two different explanations for what is going on right here, right now, right? Okay, fair enough. And James says, guess what? The reality of what's going on right here, right now, doesn't demand either of those explanations. Either one can work. They have different implications when you get down to it. When you walk them all the way to the end, they end up in different places. But there's nothing about the reality itself that demands. There's nothing. At no point did, uh, did the reality of the universe reach out and slap anybody in the head and say, you have to explain this deterministically. No. The world is plastic. Could use it. We can explain it any way we want. Right? Doesn't care. So what James says is, and what he's getting at is, given that, well, let's take a look at these two ways of explaining human behavior, determinism, free will, and see where they lead us. What do they lead to? 
Um, that's what he's, he's kind of setting up, right? He says, so, um, the world has shown itself to a great extent plastic to this demand for rationality that we have. How much farther it will show itself, this, who can say? He says, I don't know. Our only means of finding out is to try. And I, he says, and I for one, I feel as free to try conceptions of moral as of mechanical or of logical rationality. I feel no compunction about having to stick only to mechanical explanations. Why not try the moral ones on? Why not try the free will ones on? Right? If a certain formula for expressing the nature of the world violates my moral demand, I shall feel as free to throw it overboard, or at least to doubt it, as if it disappointed my demand for uniformity of sequence, for example. If this theory, this explanation, requires that I dismiss all of the human things about life, everything that makes me human, everything that makes this world meaningful and purposive and beautiful, if it requires that I get rid of all that, well, I find that offensive. That's what James is saying. That's offensive. Especially because there's no reason that I have to buy that view. There are other views just as coherent, maybe even, and his point is going more coherent, more sensible, make a better difference in the world that don't require me to give up on freedom or purpose or meaning or human relationships, beauty, creativity, and the rest. He said, so if, uh, if a theory offends your moral demands, doubt it. If it requires you to deny your own most reality, your own most experience of the real, well, then it's open for question. Right? Try it out. Toss it overboard if it needs to be tossed. He says, the one demand being, the, right, the moral demand versus the demand for uh, logical coherence, right? He says, the one demand being, so far as I can tell, quite as subjective and emotional as the other one is. Right? The, the world doesn't demand a mechanistic explanation. We do. We like it. We want one. The world doesn't demand a deterministic explanation of human behavior. We in psychology decided we liked that better. We wanted that one. And James is saying, why in the world would we decide that? We got to rethink it. Right? The principle of causality, for example, what is it but a postulate? It's not a truth that anybody experiences. It's just an idea out there. Right? It's just an idea, a postulate, an assumption, an empty name covering simply a demand that the sequence of events shall shump, shall, okay, try that again. If sequence of events shall someday manifest a deeper kind of belonging of one thing with another than the mere arbitrary juxtaposition which now phenomenally appears. Hang on, it's a packed sentence. Let me unpack it a little bit, right? He's saying, look, what is determinism? The principle of causality. It's a postulate, right? It's an empty name that we use to cover our own emotional demand, our own desire as human beings that things relate to things, that things don't just happen for chaotic, random, unknowable reasons. We want the world to be knowable. We want things to be connected. We want one thing to lead to another. That's how we want the world to make sense to us. And so, We've glommed on to the determinism doctrine because it promises us, the causality principle promises us to explain why things happen in the order they do so that we can have a world that's not chaotic. 
James is going to say, there's other ways of preserving the meaningful sequencing of things without getting stuck into determinism. Okay? This is, the, I'm, I'm going to end here, I promise. I'm going to end here with this. He says, so, so we got this, this, it's a postulate, an empty name, right? Uh, just, it masks this sense that we want the world to, to cohere and not just be a chaotic juxtaposition of arbitrary events. It is as much, this principle of causality, this determinism, he says, it is as much an altar to an unknown God as the one that St. Paul found at Athens. All our scientific and philosophical ideals are altars to unknown gods. Uniformity, determinism, causality is as much so as free will. Right? If this be admitted, we could debate on even terms. We have to admit from the beginning that determinism is an assumption, a mere postulate. So is free will. And so then what do you do if you say, well, you got two rival assumptions. They're both assumptions. There's no necessary reason I should buy one or the other. Then what? And this is where James says, well, so, okay, then let's admit there. We can start the debate. We can start examining this because they're both assumptions. Where do they lead? And if one leads to a place where we get to keep doing science, we get to have freedom, we get to have meaning and purpose in our lives, and things can be rational versus a side that leads us to where we have to deny science, we deny rationality, we end up in nihilism, then nothing means anything, just mechanical organisms. He says, well, on balance, that's the one we ought to live. Haven't proven that it's true. Can't prove either one is true. They're both assumptions. But this one leads to a pretty miserable place. And he's attesting to that in his own life. That made me want to kill myself. But this one made me kind of hopeful. Let's me be a scientist. Let's me continue the quest for truth and understanding. It makes, uh, it, it makes the meaningful relationships I have with others and even God possible. Right? Well, that's just the opening of his essay on the dilemma of term determinism. There's a lot more that he goes on. And I won't read it to you, I won't go through it, uh, but when you get to the end, the last few pages, he's gonna have a segment there where he talks about God and God's involvement in the world. And did God determine everything? And he's gonna use an analogy of the chess master and the chess student. And it's brilliant, it's beautiful stuff. It's really cool uh, and it's, it has an awful lot in common with the way we as Latter-day Saints would talk about God versus the traditional God of Christianity and, and other views, right? Um, so this, this, it's worth getting there. In fact, uh, David Paulson, who was a professor in our philosophy department, uh, did some work in religion uh, as well, very an amazing thinker, just amazing. Uh, he, wrote, uh, he wrote a paper once. And it caused a huge splash in the academic world, a huge splash, uh, a lot of controversy around it. But uh, the title of his paper, and I can make it available to anybody who wants it, because uh, it's a great piece of work, but it, it was entitled, The God of Abraham, Isaac, and William James. And uh, one of the first people to review the paper and respond to it in uh, an academic forum was another scholar, uh, another uh, philosopher, uh, his, his response was, um, Professor Paulson is just trying to defend 
uh, and mark out a space to defend the God of Mormonism. Dave Paulson's response to that was, yep, James helps do that. James is intriguing in that way. James was not a Latter-day Saint. He struggled with uh, organized religion and a lot of things there, but he does open up an interesting space to think about God, certainly to think about free will, human agency, morality, um, and science and how uh, psychological science might be done if it weren't just stuck in experimentalism. Well, that's that's it. I love James. I think he's fascinating. I go back to him all the time. He's one of one of my most influential thinkers that I've read and studied and learned from. Um, I wish we had an entire semester to read James and, and get acquainted with him. He's deep and profound and funny and fun to read. Um, you've maybe only got a tiny taste of some of that. But uh, anyway, I wanted to share that with you. Maybe that will help you in your own what you've been reading about James and thinking about it, put some things in context, clarify some stuff that maybe wasn't clear in your readings. I hope, I hope that works out. Um, if you have questions, you have comments, uh, you want to argue, you want to complain, whatever, the, whatever, right? Send me, send the TAs, emails, texts, uh, go to Digital Dialogue on Learning Suite. Leave uh, a comment there, get a discussion going with uh, so on and so forth. We want to be part of that. We want to help you out. Don't suffer in silence. Don't struggle. Uh, and if you want to share ideas, we want to be part of that as well in as much as we can, being uh, separated as we are now. But, uh, until the next one of these I do, uh, stay safe, stay healthy, and uh, to borrow a phrase from scripture, that's appropriate for this pandemic time of self-isolation. Wash and pray. Goodbye.